When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Golden Globe nominee Rust and Bone is now available on demand. And take a look inside Stanley Kubrick's The Shining in the documentary Room 237. On demand starting on March 29th, the same day it's in theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And coming up in exactly 34 minutes and 12 seconds on this week's episode, Matt and I travel back in time through the use of a fail-safe device to make sure you never hear our review of this week's listener's choice pick, Primer. And nine minutes and 51 seconds from now, two of our duplicates from alternate timelines will bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme and inspired by Primer. We thought it'd be really cute if we just recommended Primer over and over again, but with different versions, so we're constantly correcting our past mistakes in previous iterations of the timeline until we finally get it right. And then we realized that, that was kind of cute and clever, but that would maybe be the worst podcast of all time. So instead, we'll cut out the fancy pants high-concept shtick and recommend some time travel titles available for streaming. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one title that's new on VOD, give you a rundown of a few other notable films that are new on demand on cable. Matt, what's our first pick this week? Our first pick this week is entitled Starlet. It's directed by a gentleman by the name of Sean Baker. This was a multi-award winning indie film. It's played South by Southwest. It won an award there. It was a Spirit Award winner last year, actually, for Best Ensemble. I think that's the Robert Altman Award Yes, the Spirit Awards. Uh, I haven't actually seen this one, but this is one that I've heard so much good stuff about that I've been really meaning to catch up with. Uh, hopefully this will be the week where I finally do it. Here's the plot description. An unlikely cross-generational friendship springs up between 21-year-old Jane and elderly Sadie. Two women whose worlds collide in California's San Fernando Valley. <laughs> the beautiful San Fernando Valley. I can't think of anything but Bill Murray saying that phrase. Hey, how much is this one? No refunds. Thank you. Say so you found like a lot of money and you're pretty sure you know whose it is. And you're pretty sure that he or she has no idea that they ever had it. What would you do? Hey. Do you remember me? I bought the thermos from you. What's wrong? My cab's gone. Well, 
I can give you a ride. No, no problem. I'll call enough. I won't take no for an answer. Allison, have you seen Starlet yet? I have not. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but this is high on my list of movies to check out. It's supposedly pretty great, and it is called Starlet, and it is available now on VOD. We have two more picks for you this week. Uh, first up, also available now on VOD, is the adaptation of Jack Kerouac's famous novel, On the Road. It's directed by Walter Salas, who previously directed The Motorcycle Diaries, and this version Stars Sam Riley, Garrett Hedlund, and Kristen Stewart of Twilight fame, and it is indeed a adaptation of I think well your favorite novel of all time. You said, Allison, oh, yeah, right? Definitely. I'm just... You have a you have a dog-eared copy that you keep in your back pocket it's, uh, at all underlined, times. Underlined, like tons of notes in the in the margins. Yeah. Now, would you be willing to uh, see? Are you would you in, as a purist, as an obsessive? You haven't seen this version yet. Is, are you holding out because you hold the original so dear? Is that why? I basically, I just can't live on anywhere except in my soul. The version, the sweeted version of On the Road you made where you played all the parts? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, which is pretty good. I have to say I've seen that. Thank you. It's not bad. You know, it was an early work. Right. This one, the production values are a little higher. And actually, I actually did think uh, – oh, I didn't love this movie. I did think Garrett Hedlund, who – probably don't know by name but if you do know him by name you know him as the guy from tron legacy which was not a very good movie and he was not very good in it but he's actually really good in this movie and very charismatic you know and that's what his character has to be you get the that attraction that all the other characters around him have to him he pulls that off i I, it was sort of an eye-opening performance for me where i went oh this guy actually is an actor he's not just a the latest you know Quasi Australian hunk right. that's been deforeignized <laughs> and given a horrible American accent to appear in movies opposite Jeff Bridges or some other aging American star. So he can act. I mean, I think that's the definitely the most positive sign. Uh, it's a beautiful looking movie and sort of a, a grungy 1950s sort of way. Again, I didn't love it, but uh, it has things to like, including Garrett Hedlund. So if you're unlike Allison and you're willing to at least <laughs> accept the possibility of a, a film version of On the Road that is available now on VOD. And finally, uh, another film I haven't seen, but I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out. I, I'm not sure if it's called Love or, or, or called L-U-V. That's how it's spelled. It's the word love, but spelled L-U-V. This was a competition film from the 2012 Sundance Film Festival. It was directed by Sheldon Candice. has a great cast, Common, uh, Dennis Haysbert, Danny Glover, and Charles S. Dutton. This one is available on VOD starting on April 2nd. And I'll give you the plot description. An 11-year-old boy gets a crash course in what it means to be a man when he spends a day with the uncle he idolizes in this poignant and gritty coming-of-age story. And uh, the director, I believe, made a short film version and, and then turned that into a feature. And I've seen the short, and the short is very effective. So I would be very curious to see this one. I'm looking forward to it. I don't think you've seen this one either, Allison. We hadn't seen a lot of the best options this week for VOD. But anyway, that's Love or L-U-V. And it is available starting on April 2nd. For this week's topic, we chose time travel in movies, which 
kind of the obvious pick, but you can't get around it. I mean, come on, it's right. Primer. It's a it's a movie about time travel. It's one of the most time travelist it's, time travel movies of all time. It's very time travelly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, is there anything you have some thoughts on time travel movies in general? I do, and I don't want to spoil our review too much. But and this is not something I really had ever thought about before. But having rewatching Primer. And then watching and or rewatching some of these other time travel movies for the podcast, I realized something. And I'm going to get a little polemical here, Allison. Okay. Oh, I'm, I'm excited for yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I actually kind of feel passionate about this. I don't care how time travel works. And I don't really care all that much in movies about the rules of time travel. And I don't really want to see movies about time travel that are too time travely. Like, let, let, let me put it this way: I like when a time travel movie uses time travel as the means to explore an idea. I don't like time travel movies where time travel is the idea that's being explored. I don't really care about the metaphysical implications. Okay, so you know, like, if I wanted to do that, I would have become a theoretical physicist. Like, that's what that's for. Like, movies are for, to me, it's like, yes, they're intellectual, but they're also emotional. I want to feel something. And I want, so like, for Back to the Future, you know, which I think, well, we won't discuss on this podcast. It's, because it's, it's certainly been discussed yes, before. <laughs> I don't think you need me to recommend Back to the Future to you. It's probably, in, I, in my book, that would be probably the best time travel movie of all time. And that's, Despite the fact that probably a person who really is smart about these things would say, well, it doesn't make any sense and there's a paradox and actually what he does doesn't work. And And then who – why would the photo fade like that? Right, exactly. (laughs) Why would the photo fade? Yeah, right, exactly. The photo wouldn't exist at all. Yeah. (laughs) Good. Thank you. You You've spoken with that person. I I feel like you've had this conversation. But that's not what makes Back to the Future great. What makes Back to the Future great is it uses time travel as this metaphor, basically, for fathers and sons, for regret, for about growing old and becoming this really sad version of yourself, and what would happen if you got another chance, and how how children see their parents – and how they don't recognize themselves in them until Marty gets this unique chance to meet his parents at his own age, and it blows his mind. And it kind of makes us think about our own parents. And it's also funny and smart and, and clever and well-directed and all these wonderful things. It's an adventure. Is it a great time travel movie in, like, a scientific sense? I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing not. But it's a great time travel movie in spite of that. And that's, that's what I want. When I was looking for examples of great time travel movies to recommend what you're going to see in mine are movies that i think a a scientist or a philosopher or person who cares about that crap would be like that's a terrible time travel movie and no one should ever watch it and i almost feel like I, i literally could not care less about any of that i don't know how you feel i i can't think of a lot of them that would really fall into that like like somewhat rigorous category Aside from Primer, really. I mean, like, are there others that you can think of? To me, it's almost like it's not even so much the examples as it is people using this as a weapon against other time travel movies, like dismissing them because they don't oh, they don't make any sense. Well, like, I think like for here's an example yes. of this would be like L- Looper, which yes. I loved from I last loved Looper year, too. Yeah. which but some people said, well, it doesn't the time travel doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And how would this happen? And how would that happen? And, you know, people write articles, the 15 things that don't make any sense about Looper. And to me, it's like Looper isn't even really about time travel. It's about the idea of meeting yourself in the future. And what would you and, think and, of yourself? And possibly disliking yourself. Right. Exactly. exactly. And yeah. right. It, which is similar to Back to the Future. Yes. It's like, what would you think if you met yourself or someone, you know, at a different age? 
age when they were a different person and how would you how would you feel about yeah. that which is a fascinating idea yes but let's agree that people who write those lists are horrible anyway right <laughs> we can accept that i mean like i feel like that you you know like and as we get to primer and talk about it like and i think that there's you know there's like talking about the primer as a movie and then talking about a certain aspect of the cult that's grown around it and there will always be a group of people who are attached to deconstructing films and like you know, like films like uh, Inception as well, and like doing timelines of it and how the timing works out and how the different. Right. And because there are always going to be people who love the idea of narratives as this puzzle box that you can break down, you mm-hmm. know, in that way. Mm-hmm. And I I would agree in that aspect, it's not very interesting. That is not very interesting to All me. All right. Well, I mean, maybe I'm not so much making a statement against time travel movies or certain <laughs> kinds as I am just sort of defending <laughs> what are about to become some very unusual time travel movie okay. picks and i'm sort of maybe i'm cutting my uh, critics off at the past ah say. interesting so why don't you start what, what's your first pick okay well my first pick i wanted to pick one that was uh you know as we were talking uh, as we looked back at primer i wanted to pick another low budget like kind of minimalist time travel movie that was recent so i looked at uh, Time Crimes, the 2007 film uh, directed by Nacho Vigalondo, mm-hmm. who's a Spanish filmmaker mm-hmm. who is like his, he's done a great array of shorts that I really recommend if you mm-hmm. can find them. They're funny and they're really smart take on genre. He's also a terrifying and amazing force at karaoke, <laughs> should you ever have a chance to see it. Uh, this film is streaming on Netflix. It was uh, released by Magnolia, I believe. And it is basically, it has four people in it. Uh, and it's just about how this man and his wife are living in the Spanish countryside. They seem to right. have moved there recently. They're like rebuilding this house. And then the guy happens to see he sees this woman off in the woods and he's looking through his uh, binoculars and she takes her top off and he's kind of intrigued and he goes off to explore. And this becomes this whole kind of time travel uh, advent- like uh, adventure seems like the wrong word because it's it's kind of like a dark movie. Like, like bad, a, yeah. bad things happen. It's like a thriller. It is like a thriller. Uh, and it involves like there's this guy like uh, with a bandaged face who looks kind of like, you know, like this threatening figure. There's uh, Vigilando plays this scientist working up at the center who's made this machine. The actual... I mean, like it's interesting because, like as you said, like this is definitely a puzzle movie. I was like, going to say this is together. sort of this is this is yeah this is pretty close to what I was against. Yes. But I, I mean, I do like this movie it's yeah. because it, it is so well made and it well is, constructed yeah. that I, I, I have to begrudgingly yeah. admit that I do like this. Well, one. and I think also, I mean, the thing that I l- like about it uh, that I think it does well is that it isn't it isn't that concerned with the mechanics of. Uh, how the time travel works, right? Like it's this pool technologically, of, like, technologically, yeah. and even in terms of the time, like the the, it becomes like an ethical quandary, right? Because like this is time crimes. It's called time crimes, and there's like uh like bad things that happen within the course of it, and then it's interesting in that like there's no like there's no uh, intent behind like these crimes in that the crimes happen because someone thinks that they kind of have to happen in order to keep this time loop. To preserve intact. the timeline. Yeah. And like, you know, there's not a lot of inquiry into the science of this. It's kind of like, it's given. But I think that's actually where it's interesting is that like, this this array of like, kind of increasingly worse things happen. And at some parts, um, like a character does it not because they have any particular interest in making it happen. Like, they, have, not, they feel like they have to they fulfill feel like they have to make it happen because the they've already seen it the, happen. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. and like that, there's something very interesting about that yes. aspect yes. that I think 
I mean, like the film doesn't go that deep. I think that's certainly like a possible critique to offer. It's like 90 minutes long and it doesn't, it's, it's, it's mostly clever as opposed to kind of having any kind of like weight to it. Mm -hmm. But there is a great way in which the, the distance between where the main character starts and ends up is so tremendous given like how, how little he actually travels and like what, how little like the things actually happen. And I think like that, like the, the ethics of it, uh, the morality of it are potentially very interesting. So uh, that's Time Crimes. It is currently streaming on Netflix. All right. My first pick, uh, similar in that this is also a sort of low-budget... Uh, not too sci-fi heavy uh, time travel movie, um, but this one is a little bit. It's a little less puzzly, and this is more. This is this is sort of what I'm talking about. It's called Somewhere in Time. It's available on Netflix. It's a 1980 film directed by Jeannot Swark, and it was written by uh, and based on a novel by Richard Matheson, the famous sci-fi uh, and horror novelist and screenwriter. And this real, I mean, this is really how I like my time travel movies. It's like the time travel, and this is. I mean, it's silly. I mean, have you ever seen this movie, Allison? Christopher Reeve travels back in time from 1980 to 1912 through the use of (laughs) self-hypnosis. If you believe, Allison, that you are back in time, if you believe it strongly enough, you can go there. So he he does what you would do. He buys an old-timey suit. He fills his pockets with 19-teens-era coins. He throws all the modern furniture and technology in his hotel room in, like, a closet and he projects his mind into the past. And it works! He suddenly appears in 1912. And the reason he does this admittedly strange and almost, you know, certainly impossible activity is, uh, is that he's fallen in love with an old photograph of an actress from 1912 and decides that he has to meet her. Uh, the woman in the photograph is Jane Seymour, who is such a beautiful woman that it's maybe not that much of a stretch that you could fall in love with a photograph. Uh, there's more intrigue here because a few years earlier, uh, as the movie begins, uh, Reeve's character, he's a playwright. He's premiering his very first play as a, like a college aspiring playwright. And this old woman comes to like the cast party, shows up out of nowhere. No one knows who she is. She hands him a pocket watch and says, come back to me, and then walks away. And we very quickly realize that this is the Jane Seymour character at the end of her life. And so she's pushing him to travel back through time through self-hypnosis. Let me tell you something, Richard, is it? Yes, sir. I was in Venice in 1971, staying in a very old hotel. But I mean very old. Structure, furnishings, everything. The atmosphere was uh, aged, if you follow me. In my room, I felt as though it was a century or more earlier than 1971. You understand? Yes, sir. So, in other words, then, the location is very important. Not all important, but essential. The rest is here. It's an absurd idea. The technique is absurd. But, but it's absurd in the service of something really beautiful, which is this great love story and this idea, this examination of this idea, which is, you know, is there such a thing as destiny? Are two people destined to be together in spite of great obstacles and great distance, 
which in this case is like time, which is, you know, this gulf of 70 years or whatever it is. Could this keep two people apart, even though they feel like they're meant to be together? And then also, if you get separated, uh, how do you live after that? How do you go on if you've been separated from someone who you feel destined to be with? I'd actually never seen this movie before. I, it's, I'd heard about it for years and years. It's the kind of movie where I think everyone I know, except you apparently, you know, when this movie would come up, you'd say, oh, somewhere in time. And they'd say, oh, yeah, that's a pretty good movie. <laughs> uh, and I watched it last night. And I have to say, Allison, yeah, it's a pretty good movie. You know, it, it's got this great chemistry between Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour. They're great together. Christopher Plummer is excellent. He as he is Jane Seymour's evil controlling manager. He refuses to lose his star client to a romance. So... He has a lot of scenes where he uh, glares very ominously and goatee at Christopher Reeve. I mean, and there's not too many people who are better at that kind of thing than Christopher Plummer. And again, the time travel, which is pretty silly, uh, is is there to explore this idea, which I think is explored very effectively in this lovely little romantic movie, which is called Somewhere in Time, and it is available on Netflix. Yeah, the um, the falling in love with a photograph or fixating on a photograph is a kind of interesting trope in the time travel movie, like Terminator, right? Yes, that's true. Uh, and it actually fig- figures into my pick, which is um, Happy Accidents. Ah, yes. The 2000 movie, it is currently streaming on Netflix as well. Directed by Brad Anderson, who uh, is probably better known now for the thrillers and horror movies. He's been, like The Machinist. Didn't he just direct nine, the, call? the Call? Which is out right now. It's not terrible. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's not terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I have not seen it yet, but uh, you know, he kind of started his career with these indie romantic comedies, a right. pair of them, um, Next Stop Wonderland with Hope Davis and Happy Accidents, which stars Marissa Tomei and Vincent D'Onofrio, who's the, the obvious, great romantic the obvious Vincent choice D'Onofrio. for a yeah, romantic comedy. Um, and I, I think this, speaking of like films that are not particularly concerned with uh, the the technology or or the logic of time travel, uh, this is a film in which Marissa Tomei plays Ruby. She's this New Yorker who has uh, codependent tendencies. She's had these disastrous relationships with a string of guys who are like she's tried to fix. So she meets this uh, quirky and odd, but actually very sweet guy named Sam, played by D'Onofrio. And she thinks maybe there's something here. They have this whirlwind romance. And then he starts telling her that he's a time traveler from the year 2470. Um, And she has to kind of decide if... This is some kind of weird game he's playing with her. The worst OKCupid okay ad exactly. that's ever been. Um, like, or, or if he's like actually like mentally ill. And because it's Vincent D'Onofrio, he does a pretty good job of keeping you on the line there. Of like, <laughs> what if he is mentally ill? He might be. Like, and actually, I think like one of the things that makes the film work, uh, you know, kind of against all odds, really, given it's like a very odd setup, is that D'Onofrio is so kind of. A genuinely off kilter but also very disarmingly sweet when when called for it so like the romance between them as much as it has it's like huge ups and downs is really interesting and actually pretty believable and like one of the things is also like uh notable about this film is that while most romantic comedies are about you know how a couple eventually ends up together this is about how a couple has a relationship, basically. Like, it starts off with them. They get together very easily. It's more about how they decide to, you know, live with each other's oddball characteristics, including claims of time travel. You gotta tell me what's really going on here. Ruby. 
I would never do anything to hurt this relationship. I wouldn't. That's the truth. It's just that, um, I have, uh, RTDS. RTDS. Yes. Residual temporal drag syndrome. But one of the things that's nice about the whole time travel claim is that D'Onofrio will constantly kind of spill more and more backstory, right? Like Sam has all this, will just casually throw out mentions of like, oh, well, that was when the Clone Wars happened then. And like, in the future, most people are genetic dupes, uh, are corporate sponsored genetic dupes. But like, he's an anachronist uh, who was born traditionally. And like, just like all these details about that are very amusing about the world and what happened in the last, you know, uh, centuries that have passed. Um, so I, it's like, it's a really cute film. And I think it does something unusual, both in terms of its romantic comediness and in terms of time travel. And I, I can't really think of many other films that uh, have managed that combo so well. So that is Happy Accidents. It is available for streaming on Netflix. All right. My next pick, a little bit more mainstream and a whole lot stupider. It is Time Cop and it's available on <laughs> Amazon and iTunes. And the uh, physics of this and this are may impeccable. be yeah this may be the dumbest movie ever made about time travel i mean i don't consider myself a very smart individual Allison. i'm not a bright guy but even i and all my limited intellectual capacity can fill this movie like there are so many holes that even i as a dimwit can like where but the idea is so much fun but you so you just you i to me it's like it's like you just want to go along for the ride. You just want to believe in what this dim-witted Belgian martial artist is doing <laughs> as he's trying to, quote-unquote, protect the time stream. And the idea in this movie is that in 1994, uh, time travel is invented. But uh, immediately, uh, the people who invent it, who are scientists who work for the U.S. government, they recognize that there is this great danger that the time stream could be mucked with, like – Allison, you, because you're a venal, horrible person. That's true. You might travel back in time to the day before the stock market crash and short sell all these stocks knowing that the that the, the market is going to crash and you'll be able to profit from it. And then you could take that money back into the present and you'd be rich and you'd Ooh. be able yeah, and you'd be able to to buy and sell people like me. Over and over again. Ah, ha, ha, ha. Yes, exactly. And laugh evilly. So they create this, like, time police department to police the time stream. And immediately you go, well, wait a second. If you change the past, how in the present could you, uh, could you actually monitor that and then know it before? Like, once it's happened in the past, how is it recognized in the present without actually changing the present? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Jean-Claude Van Damme can do anything. Jean-Claude Van Damme is our greatest protector. In the year 2004, time travel is a reality. You are charged with violations of TEC code 40.8, time travel with intent to alter the future. And a crime. It turns out coming back in time is a pretty easy way to make money. I think you got yourself a shipment of gold and you're taking a general lead. 
The genie is already out of the bottle. The technology is there. Now, one man. You ever hear the name Aaron McComb? Is about to take the ultimate power trip. He's gonna be president. You don't need the press. You don't need endorsements. You don't even need the truth. You need money. But to enforce the laws of time. Are we still together in ten years? Am I dead? One man is determined to stop him. I cannot go back to save her. This scumbag is not going back to steal money. Stay here, Walker. My future, you're dead. What I love about this is you're watching him travel through time to, quote-unquote, protect the time stream from Ron Silver, who's the bad guy in this movie. He's sort of an evil senator who's trying to control time travel technology. It is one of the greatest all-time villain, like, evil villain performances. He's constantly munching on peanuts or nuts of some kind and and just – so blatantly evil in his trying to manipulate the time stream. There's no subterfuge whatsoever. It's just like he's the scientist. He's the uh, senator who knows all this stuff is happening, and he just instantly becomes – he's like, I'm going to just take over the world. I'm going to become president, and I'm going to travel back in time myself, which is seemingly very dangerous. But he does it anyway because he's so evil. So it's just so much fun to watch him berate Jean-Claude Van Damme. And and then the fact that he has a – a wife who dies. It's Mia Sarah. It's uh, the, the the love interest from Ferris Bueller. Actually, is his is Jean Claude Van Damme's dead wife in this movie, who he pines over. And then, of course, what happens, Allison? He gets to see her again, go back to the past, and and I think that idea is pretty interesting. Even if this is a Jean Claude Van Damme movie, it's still kind of interesting to you know he essentially is is in charge of protecting the time stream, so he's not allowed to bring his dead wife back to life essentially even though he has the power to do it which i think is kind of interesting uh and then also john claude van damme does splits and stuff so yeah. uh it is an incredibly dumb movie but i i sort of just like i said i enjoy a movie that kind of is like who cares it's time travel but so what this is a john claude van damme movie let's just have some fun with the idea of jumping all over time and people having multiple versions of themselves and punching and kicking and shooting our and, way through and doing splits and doing splits and i enjoy that yeah. so that's time cop it is available on amazon and itunes i do enjoy like i do have a real soft spot for any movie where someone like like tries to fix you know like goes back to try and fix things and then right. there's like this like terrible effect and then they have to try harder to fix like i have to say a dumber movie maybe about time travel this is not my pick but i, I feel like it's a butterfly effect no though i love the butterfly effect okay that's hilarious uh the sound a sound of thunder Oh, I haven't seen oh, that one. Oh, starring uh, Paul Walker. I mean, with all due respect to uh, Ray Bradbury, who wrote the short story that this is based on. Sorry, not Paul Walker. This is Edward Burns. Paul Walker was in another. He was in Timeline. Timeline, yeah. Um, Edward Burns. And this is like. They're basically the yeah, same basically movie. Basically the same. But like, um, it, it involves uh, a world where people can go on time safaris and go back to and shoot dinosaurs, right? Right. So, but then like something goes wrong. And you're like, why of all the uses for like time travel, rich it's going to go rich on people safaris. to go back and like shoot like animals that would already get killed because of some disaster. Like uh, it's just that seems like the most ridiculous. But elaborate. I enjoy that because it's I like ju- it's fun. It's like because it's only a sci-fi writer would think of this as like time travel. What can we do with it? I know time cops. Yes, I know. Well, and then I like that in this, like, of course that it threatens to basically destroy the universe and humanity and right. whatever. And you're like, well, I hope it was worth it for your time safari. <laughs> like, you know, what a good use of technology. I'm sure, I'm sure it was. I'm yeah. sure Edward Burns enjoyed every moment. Yeah. Well, I was at my final pick. Uh, I wanted to throw something in that also, I think uh, it's a TV show and it's one that I think, has a lot of fun with uh would never ever get you know like uh 
play by difficult rules in terms of uh, how its technology works. And that is Futurama, uh, which is streaming on Netflix all actually, I think all the way up to the current episode that's been out. It's in the middle of season seven right now, which uh, for whatever reason, they decided to divide up over two years. Uh, I don't know why they didn't just call it season seven and eight, but there you go. Um, and, you know, the, even the premise of the show is time travel based by way of cryogenics. The main character, Philip J. Fry, is a pizza delivery boy from the 20th century who ends up in the 31st century after being frozen and woken up again. Um, and, I, you know, I think one of the things the show does so well is it has like clever treatment of all of these sci-fi tropes without having any interest in scientific rigor whatsoever. And it has actually in its, even its premise kind of built up its own mythology uh, kind of like backwards and back to the future style. So making it so that its main character has all of these reasons for actually ending up in the future after all. But I wanted to uh, pick an episode that does what I think the show can do best sometimes, which is have a great combination of like futuristic sci-fi ideas and uh, kind of emotional drama. You know, I, I think uh, this show is a comedy. It's created by Matt Groening, who The Simpsons. But uh, there have been episodes in which there total heartbreaking things have happened, including uh, Jurassic Bark with Fry's dog. Oh really my sad. god, that is <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> oh my god, as I'm sitting here and my yeah. own dog is laying here. Oh my god, it's yeah. like that is one of the most heart wrenching cartoons I oh, think that's ever been it's, made. Um, yeah, it's up there with Bambi's mom, definitely. Or even like the episode in which Fry tries to find his uh clover his lucky clover oh that's another good also one. good yep. you know so uh i wanted to give a shout out to the late philip j fry which is a season six episode it premiered in 2010 okay this one i haven't seen yeah yet. it's available for streaming uh directed by peter uh avanzino and lewis and written by lewis morton and it's basically about how fry is always late to his dates with leela his uh cyclops love interest uh, and he is supposed to meet her for dinner at uh, Caverns on the Green. I think it's called the a cave, fancy cave restaurant. Uh, he and Professor Farnsworth and Bender, uh, they kind of get pulled into doing a test on this time machine that Professor Farnsworth has made. And he accidentally sends them forward to 10,000 A.D., uh, and actually, this time machine that he's made, per you know the kind of arbitrary and inconvenient rules of time travel, it can only go forwards. So they decide that to fix this and get back, they need to keep going forwards in time until they can find someone who's invented the backwards time machine. So then they can start skipping further ahead and further ahead in time. It contains references to all these different uh, kind of classic sci-fi time travel, mo- like uh, like Planet of the Apes, Time Machine, The Terminator. It's very cleverly done. But what I think the episode does best is when they realize that they might actually... I mean, spoilers, 20 minute episode, um, but that they might actually not be able to get back. And then they kind of accelerate through to the end of time. And it's fantastic. The end of the universe. So long, Earth. Thanks for the air and whatnot. Uh, what was the purpose of life anyway? Who knows? Probably some hogwash about the human spirit. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. It's really like a kind of fantastic, you know, in 22 minutes, a pretty fantastic episode. And 
you know, Futuramas can be really up and down. I'm a, I'm a big fan of it as a show. It's not always, uh, it's, it can be uneven, but I think when the show is on and does something well, which it, it does in this episode it can be really fantastic. And, uh, you know, both if you're a lover of time travel stories, uh, this one is great just because it works as a standalone piece, but also it, it contains great nods to so many of the, the classics in the genre. So that is the late Philip J. Fry uh, from Futurama, currently streaming on Netflix. All right. My last pick is also a TV show. I've got a whole bunch of episodes to recommend here briefly. And it's from a television show that actually has been parodied and spoofed on Futurama many times. It's The Twilight Zone, mm. one of my favorite TV shows of all time. Back on our old podcast, the IFC podcast, didn't we do a whole episode uh, about we The Twilight did. Zone? We did. Uh, that was Time to the Box, right? Which was based uh, on a Twilight Zone episode. And so there's actually been quite a few time travel episodes of the twilight zone and in most cases they are very much in that style that i like which is they're very rarely about a scientist who creates a time travel machine and this is how it works and this is what happens they're much more sort of mysterious in that people find themselves inexplicably flung either forward or backwards in time usually backwards and and it's not so much about how does this work as it is about sort of the ethical dilemmas, the ideas that these things present and 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 how regular people react to, you know, incredible circumstances, which is what a lot of uh, Twilight Zone episodes are about, not just the time travel ones. So let me recommend three in particular I like, and then I could give you a quick list of even four more that are all about time travel. So there's a lot of Twilight Zone episodes out there. So the first one I'll recommend is – these are all available on Netflix. The first one is from season two, episode 13. It's called Back There. And this one is about a guy uh, in you know the early 1960s when the show was made who's in a club in Washington, D.C., and he's – playing cards with his rich, snooty friends, and they're all discussing, well, how would time travel work if you could go back in time? Could you change things, or would it be impossible? And, of course, he refuses to even indulge in the conversation. He's not really all that interested. So what do you think happens, Allison? Time travel? Time travel! He walks out of the club, and he finds himself back in the 1860s, the day before Abraham Lincoln is about to be assassinated. And... The question is, will he be able to save Abraham Lincoln, and should he? Uh, should he save him, or would that present some sort of uh, catastrophic uh, paradox to the timeline? And, uh, you know, the, the lead actor in this one is a gentleman by the name of Russell Johnson. And, you know, a lot of Twilight Zone episodes are based on the caliber of the actor who's at the center of it. And he is not one of the best actors to hold a Twilight Zone episode. But that said, this, is a this episode is a lot of fun in a, in a time travel way. And it actually is kind of, I mean, not to spoil it too much, but what I enjoy about it is the fact that so many time travel movies are about the fact that how easily changed time is and that we must protect the timeline, like like uh, Time Cop and all of these things and uh, God forbid the paradoxes and all this. And this episode kind of says, no, actually, uh, there, th some things are meant to happen and they're, they're unavoidable and cannot be changed. Little things can be changed, but big, big things, they are set in some sort of stone, which – you know, it's very – like that's an idea that you could think about for days until your head hurts. So that's a, that's a great episode. That's called Back There. Another very interesting episode with a totally different take on, uh, on time travel. 
Another great episode with a totally different take on time travel is from also from season two, episode 18. That's the Odyssey of Flight 33, which is about a plane, uh, uh, a passenger jet from the 1960s that's flying one day that inexplicably accelerates past the sound barrier and winds up back in the age of the dinosaurs and then has to figure out how do we get back? What do we do? And unlike a lot of Twilight Zone episodes, which are famous for the twist endings, this one doesn't really have a twist, and that's kind of what makes it very sad and unsettling. You're riding on a jet airliner en route from London to New York. You're at 35,000 feet atop an overcast and roughly 55 minutes from Idlewild Airport. But what you've seen occur inside the cockpit of this plane is no reflection on the aircraft or the crew. It's a safe, well-engineered, perfectly designed machine. And the men you've just met are a trained, cool, highly efficient team. The problem is simply that the plane is going too fast. And there is nothing within the realm of knowledge, or at least logic, to explain it. Unbeknownst to passenger and crew, this aeroplane is heading into an uncharted region, well off the beaten track of commercial travelers. It's moving into the twilight zone. What you're about to see, we call the Odyssey of Flight 33. It's really just about the fear of flying, actually. It's about going up in the sky in this rickety cigar tube made out of metal and wondering, am I ever going to get back down? And does this equipment really work? And what happens if something goes wrong? And just sort of the inexact science of science. And uh, I find this this episode – I find this episode really – very unsettling, very sad. One of the more poignant uh, Twilight Zone episodes. I love the ending of this one, which I will not spoil. And finally, one more. This is supposedly one of Rod Serling's favorite episodes of the Twilight Zone. Season 1, episode 30, A Stop at Willoughby. This is about a ad man who hates his job. He's sort of like Don Draper, but he hates his job. He hates his life. Very unhappy. And he commutes home from work in the city on this train. And he wake, falls asleep. He wakes up back in... In the 1880s, in this idyllic town called Willoughby, it's beautiful and peaceful. And then he wakes up, and he's back in his regular time, and he finds out there is no place called Willoughby. It doesn't exist. It's not on this train line. But every day when he falls asleep on the train, he, he, he winds up in Willoughby. It's this real, it seems like this real place and this more idyllic, beautiful time. And so, you know, you, I think you can guess what's going on here. It's about how we idealize the past and how we hate the present and it's perhaps to our own detriment. This one does have a twist ending, which is kind of very clever too, which I won't spoil. So that's a stop at Willoughby, but there's plenty more. If you're interested, walking distance, the last flight, a hundred yards over the rim, a quality of mercy. These are all excellent time travel episodes from the twilight zone, all recommended, all not really about the, the theoretical physics of time travel, just about the philosophical, ideas and they're all great they're all available on netflix this episode of film spotting svu is also sponsored by movie pass which is a subscription service which allows you to pay a monthly fee and see a movie per day at many major theaters near you uh, you check in using an app on your smartphone and then you have a membership card and it works for any new release uh, though it doesn't yet cover 3d or imax yep we both have our movie passes i've been using mine i used mine twice this week actually wow. also, i saw the call last weekend and then in the middle of the week, I went and saw No for the – I'd seen it once before. I paid that time. And this time, I was able to use my movie pass. Uh, it was great. Saw them both using my movie pass. And if you go to the movies several times a month, you might want to check movie pass out. Instead of paying per ticket, you pay that flat fee for the month. 
and you get one film per day. I mean, three, two or three in a week. I mean, that Especially already in New York, prices. in New York, that already pay, that practically pays for itself. And this is just one week, let alone a whole month. So check out moviepass.com slash film spotting for more information. And be sure to use the offer code film spotting to get $10 off the first month of your subscription. Here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read this and you're going to listen and you're going to stay on the line and you're not going to interrupt. You're not going to speak for any reason. Some of this you know. I'm going to start at the top of the page. Meticulous. Yes. Methodical. Educated. They were these things. Nothing extreme. Like anyone they varied. There were days of mistakes and laziness and infighting. And there were days, good days, when by anyone's judgment, they would have to be considered clever. No one would say that what they were doing was complicated. It wouldn't even be considered new, except for maybe in the geological sense. They took from their surroundings what was needed and made of it something more. All right, that brings us to our Listener's Choice Review, which this week is Shane Carruth's Primer, which absolutely and probably not too surprisingly decimated the competition in our poll, beating both Robert Altman's Popeye and the new indie comedy It's a Disaster by quite a wide margin. Allison, I think if you added... Popeye and It's a Disaster's votes together, they still wouldn't have come close to beating Primer. So you guys really want to hear us talk about this 2004 cult film about a pair of enterprising scientists played by Shane Carruth and David Sullivan who accidentally invent a time machine in their garage and try to figure out a way to safely use it to profit off the stock market. In just 77 minutes of our time, and several days of theirs, or perhaps is it more, Allison? Their best laid plans are quickly laid to waste. But my question, Allison, is whether you think our listeners really want to hear us talk about Primer, or whether they want us to explain it to them. And is there really that much to say about this movie beyond, quote-unquote, figuring it out? And yes, explaining all what these vague and mysterious and decidedly lo-fi time-travel-based plot twists really mean. Is Primer a movie, or is it a puzzle? Do you enjoy watching it, or do you enjoy figuring it out? So I hadn't seen this movie for years, and one thing that that stood out to me when I was watching it again for the podcast was that in the 77 minutes of its runtime, time travel, they don't actually start with the time travel until about halfway through the movie. The first half is all setup of them, uh, you know, in the kind of Dallas uh, Silicon Prairie area. They are engineers at one of the big firms there. They are working on the side with two business partners that they kind of like cut out of the loop to sell chips and start their own business, right? There's this real, they want to be a startup. They want to come up with technology that can get them out of this life. Uh, And, you know, it was something that having seen so many charts breaking down what happens in the latter half of the film uh, and like what, when there are branching timelines, I did forget that actually a lot of the film is just focused on them, like the two of them and their relationship and how they end up in this situation to begin with. Uh, I I like this movie, I think, more than you do. Um, But I I think that one of the things that is both interesting about it and a bit of its weakness is that it it is, I would say, as much a film about the demise of this friendship 
as it is about time travel. And but it puts so little emphasis on the big dramatic moments. Like the the two major kind of like or like the major dramatic moment in the movie, it happens mostly off camera, right? And I think that that is something that either by the choice of the film, like how it the it was made uh in terms of its minimalism or because of budget, uh does does give it a weird off balance uh, sense in terms of its drama. But I mean, like, Matt, what do you feel like there is any drama? Like, are you attached to these two characters at all? Not really. And as I hear you describing what the movie is about, these friends and their relationship, I find the movie you're describing sounds much more appealing than the movie <laughs> that I've watched several times now, which I really find to just be about the puzzle of it all. You know, like, I, it's like asking me how I feel about a Rubik's Cube, you know, like, yeah, it can be interesting to play with a Rubik's Cube. And honestly, I'm not smart enough to solve a Rubik's Cube. Just but peel I- the stickers off and put them back on. <laughs> That's what I do. And it works really well. Right. But I don't have an emotional reaction to a Rubik's Cube. You know, like, it's a puzzle. It's something you play with and you think about and you try to put it together and maybe you succeed and maybe you kind of give up after a while. That's sort of how I feel about this movie. It is interesting, and I have the utmost respect for someone who, like Shane Carruth, could make this movie for $7,000 or whatever it is, all himself, write it, direct it, star in it, and do something that's more than just a couple of people sitting around chatting about their crummy lives. I mean, it has this huge mythos. In With $7,000, he creates this big idea. And I, can, I have a huge amount of respect for that. But I don't enjoy watching this movie, no matter how many times I do it, and no matter how much I read about it and then understand it. I, I find that it's just – it's very cold. And like you're saying, like these friends, it's about this friendship. I don't feel anything about this friendship. And when they talk, these guys talk – when I can hear them at all, because a lot of times their dialogue I find almost incomprehensible, like literally, like the sound is so poor or deliberately it's quiet that I can't really make it out. When I can make it out, they're talking over my head about technology and about this gadget which they've created and they don't fully understand at first. So uh, it's it's like white noise. It doesn't make any sense to me. So the movie you're describing sounds great and I almost feel like if someone took all the good stuff in this movie, and used it to really make something about a friendship, you'd have a masterpiece. But what I feel like what I see here is a Rubik's Cube, a really interesting puzzle that doesn't even really feel like a movie to me in a lot of ways because it's so dispassionate and so disinterested in the characters. It definitely is muted. But I mean, like, I would say, I mean, particularly this time watching it, like, Primer does seem to me like if you made the social network, but focused entirely on the coding process, right? Like, it is a story about two guys who have, a like, a startup business, right? That they don't even understand, like, the implications, like, the what implications will come of it, right? Right. But they started it together. And it is also about two guys who start this giant technology, but end up using it for kind of petty personal reasons right like yes. uh the the ultimately the, in like the kind of incident that we only barely see is one in which there's a party and abe's girlfriend's ex comes in with a shotgun we never see this happen we only hear them talking about it comes in with a shotgun and aaron gets to be the hero right they've already made sure it's safe they play this they go back and do this several times over so that he gets to have this great social moment Right. But that like you've come up with this technology with like potentially giant, like world, you know, world changing uh, implications. 
And they use it ultimately for this kind of like moment of masculine glory, basically, for this guy who feels very disenfranchised in his professional life, right? And like one of the other scenarios I talk about that kind of starts him off on the path of things going wrong is where they fantasize about going in. He, he wants to go in and punch his boss, right? Like he would love to be able to punch his boss and then take it back. Right. <laughs> like just know what it was like and then stop himself from doing that. Correct. You know? And I think that there's something like that aspect of the film is really interesting to me as much as it's so it's so put off the center of the film like it is you know like it's left to the side even though it's incredibly central to what happens in the story but again what you're all these things you're describing they are really interesting like these fantasies that that men might have yes absolutely i do find that idea interesting but again like you're saying like this that party is presented in such a like a montage way that we don't even really understand what we're I mean I don't find that you that those scenes make entire sense until you see it at least twice until you've read about what's going on and and really that moment with the boss wanting to punch the boss to me is like where the whole thing kind of falls into just becoming so chunky and hard to follow that it that like that's where the moment where the movie kind of loses me. So again, you're describing these interesting things, but I don't feel like the movie treats them in a very interesting way. I mean, even the ideas about time travel that are in here, like, is it intellectually stimulating or is it just so obtuse that you're just sitting there going, I don't know what's happening. What, which version of Shane Carruth is this? Which version of the other guy is this? Is this the good version or the bad version? Is this the second version or the first version? And the movie is sort of deliberately playing with you, I think, to sometimes almost, I think, to its own detriment because it's like if it was a little more clear – you could focus on these ideas, but because it's so twisted around itself, you're more focused on the plot than on the interesting stuff in the background. See, I feel like coming back to this and watching it again, as much like after having read kind of like breakdowns of the plot uh, and of all the time travel. So you read lines. the plot, then watched, rewatched it. Uh, yes, I did. See, I did the opposite. I yeah. rewatched it, and then I read the plot, and I was like, okay, yes, I get this, I get this. Although I do think as we were talking off mic, there are some things in here where they just like, for all the, all the um, like chest puffing about how this is how this like makes sense. And this is all really dense and complicated. And we worked it all out. They literally explain some things away with a line of dialogue that to me makes absolutely no, like physically makes no sense. Like it couldn't happen. Like, they just say, oh, well, that this is possible. Like, beginning, they say this is not possible. And then they say, yeah, it is possible because you could do this. Like, and we just have to accept that at face value. And I go, like, okay. No. Well, I, I mean, like, I don't, you know, for me, ultimately, even, like, having read those breakdowns, that the as that aspect of like exactly what happens in Aaron one and Aaron two and Abe one and Abe two, I don't really care that much. I mean, like, I feel like what is important, right, is that the trust issues between them, ultimately, like that, like who kind of like decides like to go back and fix things first without telling the other person. Right. And, and then just kind of the idea of like what is guiding them in this, right? Like I think in the social network parallel, which I think is like a very vague one, but like that you have right in the social network, he creates Facebook to allow like a very controlled version of like social interaction, right? right. It's like safe. Yes. And uh, Aaron's character is motivated like finds like this great pleasure, right? Like ultimately, like to the point where they mess with their lives significantly in 
having that control, right? Like the reason he's so obsessed with the party is that he gets to go back and do it again and again until he's got the best possible scenario. And he says, like, you know, we're prescient. We like it's all a kind of control okay. issue for him. All right. And I think that if you think about where the film ends, uh, you know, it ends like with multiple versions of both characters, you know, and and, and I think that like given where that they kind of spiral out. The implications of it are really like a kind of horrible sacrifice, right? But I think you're – to me personally, I think you're really focusing on this one part of the movie that you really find interesting that I don't think the movie is all that much about. Well, I think I think it is though. It leaves – I think like – it's certainly I think like a weird and I would say a weakness in the filmmaking. But like, you know, the part that you're focusing on about all of the dynamics of it, again, are like half an hour of the movie. But it's a 70-minute movie. I'm talking about yeah. something that's like 30 minutes of a 70-minute movie. I'm the other 30 minutes of yeah, it but are them. Talking, but you keep harping on on this party which we see like a couple of times in such a vague and quick and tossed off way and all the ideas you find interesting about it to me what you're describing it sounds like groundhog day which is such a much more interesting treatment of the same idea it's like if i wanted to explore that i would go rewatch yeah, groundhog, groundhog day groundhog, then rewatch you, primer in groundhog day right like it's about him learning or something in in primer they are doing damage to themselves as they do this again and again and yet they're so obsessed with this like petty social moment that like even though they're bleeding from their ears and can't write anymore like keep going back anyway sure and i guess that self-destructive aspect is interesting but doesn't aren't parts of Groundhog Day about that too? I mean, I don't want to start talking about Groundhog Day, but like yeah. you get to see him destroy himself over and over but again. Yeah, but I mean, like he, you know, he's free but, of consequences. They deliberately choose. And I think like that regardless, is something that's, yeah. But regardless, you get to know that character so much better than you I get agree. to know either I of these totally characters. I totally agree. I think that like that is definitely a major weakness. You know, and you're talking about, and I think it's interesting to compare it to the social network. I didn't make that connection, but I absolutely see it. But Mark Zuckerberg in, in the social network is an interesting character yeah. and we get to see him and understand him and learn about him. And these guys, I don't – I mean, they're girlfriends. Yeah, they no. both have, like, girlfriends in this movie. It took me, like, a second viewing to realize that they're both of them – uh-huh. That they're two separate women yeah, because they're treated in such a dismissive, uh, non-essential way. And when you're talking about how it's all about this masculine fantasy and about them wanting to look really good at this party, and I go, well, the person they're trying to impress or the people they're trying to impress are barely in the movie. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a deficiency. Yeah. I think that, like, I, I agree. I think it's a weakness, and I think that – Partially, and I'm like this, it's a 77 minute film, and like m- many of the major, beyond just the fact that like many of the time travel elements are, are like said and as opposed to shown. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of the dramatic elements are said as opposed to shown. Right. There's like a part later, late in the film where like Aaron says to Abe, like, accuses him of basically wanting to steal his family, right? And like right. jealous of my, dem- like my home life and all of that. And you have seen no suggestion that that is the case. You've right? seen no Up suggestion that point. he's jealous and you've really seen very, very little, little of his home life, life exactly. jealous of. Yeah. So like, I mean, I think that, and I mean, I, I, it's very difficult for me to tell how much of it I mean, like, I'm assuming most of it is a deliberate choice on Shane Crew's part to be like, I'm going to cut all of those aspects out of excise them from the story, Mm -hmm. you know, and I do agree. It leaves you much less emotionally attached to it because like you don't have all of the things you would normally latch onto in a character. And yet, going back and watching it again this time, even though those things are all kind of deliberately relegated to the background, those are the things that really stood out to me. All right. I mean, watching it now... and and thinking about the cult that it really has developed and it really has i'm just sort of mystified because to me it's not it's just not an enjoyable puzzle to play with you know like uh, rewatching it over and over even though it's very brief which is i think to it helps 
watching it over and over, it just doesn't hold a lot of appeal for me. Like, I would rather rewatch Time Crimes as a puzzle and to play with and enjoy that. Like, even that, even though that movie is really dark, like, I don't know, I just find it more pleasurable. Like, I don't find a lot of pleasure in this puzzling over this. And maybe, look, like I said, I'm kind of dumb. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Like, maybe it just goes over my head and it's almost too smart for me to really like engage with like the, because it, it really is so obscure and exactly what's happening. And you need to read these descriptions. Like maybe I need a little more help. And I, I don't know, maybe that's the problem is <laughs> I'm too stupid. Well, I think that if you need a primer to understand primer, then like I, that's a problem unto itself, right? Like uh, if any movie requires like a, a whole extensive backup guide. Just but doesn't to... this movie require it? I mean... No, because I think in the end, when you do unravel, like if you can wrap your head around all of the separate timelines, I don't know that that, for me, changes my sense of the movie or like affects my enjoyment of it all that much because like you can pull them all apart but like what ultimately matters right is that they start messing like they start interfering with each other's timelines mm-hmm. and, and that yeah and i think that and the, the kind of trust issues of keep trying to go back and like fix it before the other person does all right i mean i've i've i've, I've been very negative here i recognize that we're probably going to get some angry emails svu at filmplotting i would love emails. to you know yes. like if you or if you're just really passionate about primer i would love to hear your defense of it and why you love it so much and i'll we'll be maybe we should read some of these emails on you know on this podcast we can continue the discussion i will say something that i liked about it this time when i rewatched it was I did also like the fact that, you know, that the treatment of time travel as this business enterprise, which when we're watching these two guys become really fiercely protective of it, I immediately uh, start thinking about filmmaking and about, you know, filmmaking as this low, like making a movie in your garage or in your basement or doing something like that. And I think it fits perfectly with who Shane Carruth as a guy is, because when you read about him, he's very protective of his material and he writes it and he directs it and he stars in it. And when you hear about his new movie, Upstream Color, that's coming out uh, later this month, you know, he didn't want to sell it to anyone. He's distributing it himself so he can control it. And I think that sort of very hands-on quality and being very protective of your intellectual property, I think that those ideas are very much present in Primer. Uh, You see that in the characters who nudge their two partners out of the way and then who fight over control of it. Uh, I think you see that reflected in it, and, and you do get that sense of ideas that are good need to be protected. You know, maybe from yourself, perhaps even, but that they, they need to be nurtured and protected. And you do feel the director who feels so strongly about his work that he's willing to self-distribute it and work for eight years on it because he can't let anyone else touch it. You you see that in there, and I respect that. You you know, like there's a personal element to the movie in there, as puzzly and as cold as it is. You do get that, and I like that about it. So, but uh, like I said, let's hear some. Let's hear some rebuttals svu at filmspottingsvu.com in the meantime that is primer and it is available on netflix watch instantly all right we wrap up our show every time with behind the eight ball where we give you three new releases two expiring titles and one random film from our queue all available on streaming allison you are going to go first this time are you ready to begin i am ready all right let's start with three new releases okay first up is hunger uh that is new on hulu plus 2008 film steve mcqueen's first film about the 1981 irish hunger strike uh starring michael fassbender who really wasn't yet a household name at this part 
this was his, this was his breakout role. Yeah, and he plays uh, Bobby Sands, who uh, goes on a, a fatal hung- hunger strike. And the film is really beautifully shot for like kind of really disturbing subject matter, but it's marked by this amazing very long take in the, the middle in which uh, Fassbender as Sands explains his motivations for the strike to his priest, who's played by Liam Cunningham. And it's just a great bit of acting between yes. the two of them. It's pretty fantastic. Um, not, say, an uplifting film, no. however. But, you know, it, it's... Uh, and I think it shows how well McQueen and Fassbender work together. They work together again on Shame. Next pick is Don't Look in the Basement. Uh, I wanted to do... Uh, Another uh, another outlet that we I feel like we don't bring up much, which is Snag Films, which happens to be the owner also of IndieWire, which is a place we both work. They have a lot of free streaming films as well. This is a 1973 low-budget horror film directed by S.F. Brownrigg, uh, set in a mental uh, asylum in which there's a kind of experimental treatment. It doesn't really go that well. Um, there's a lot of death in this one. It's, just, uh, it's like a lot of fun and ridiculous. It was a low-budget film that was... Uh, it was in releases a double bill, um, especially in drive-ins with uh, Wes Craven's *The Last House on the Left*. And I think one of the things that's marked interesting about this is that you know, in the end, when the credits roll, mm-hmm. and they show like actors. It shows them who they are over the corpses. They're like <laughs> as their character is dead, which I think is fantastic. That's great. Uh, and my last pick is *Cosmopolis*, which is new on Netflix, it's a 2012 film directed by David Cronenberg and starring Robert Pattinson. As a young billionaire, she just wants to get a haircut. He's uh, in his limo for most of the movie as he traverses a kind of dystopic Manhattan. And if uh, you don't like primers, monot- like kind of uh, monotone dialogue, this one might be challenging for you too. But it's a film I like a lot that is streaming on Netflix. Okay. How about two expiring titles? All right. My first one is expiring on April 1st from Crackle. It is Gattaca, the 1997 film written and directed by Andrew Nichol, starring Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman, along with Jude Law, and set in a world of eugenics, in which the genetically flawed are discriminated against, and how great your genetics are determines your social class. Also expiring on April 1st from Netflix is Shadowboxer. This is the 2005, the directorial debut of Lee Daniels, who would go on to do Precious, and then The Paperboy. Yes. Uh, It stars Helen Mirren and Cuba Gooding Jr. as a stepmother and stepson slash lovers and assassins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if you ever wondered, like, how did the craziness of the paperboy happen? This is a good place to look for a start um, that is expiring from Netflix. All right. One random film from your queue. You gave me number 44, and that is Somersault, the 2004 Australian film directed by Kate Shortland. Uh, She actually has a new film out, Lore, which opened uh, last month, I believe. This film uh, was notable for being Abby Cornish's kind of breakout film. She plays a teenager in it. Sam Worthington, also in this, highly acclaimed, just one I never got around to watching. Okay. Well, All right. Gattaca. I've actually never seen Gattaca. Well, you have till April first to watch it. On I know. Crackle. I'm gonna. I'm gonna have to add that one to my queue. You think I'll like it? It's not too. I mean, it's sci-fi, but it's not. Is it? It's a. It's a heady. It's a little heady. It's a little heady. Yeah. You after know. our conversation. After our conversation about this, I don't know. It's another one that's become a big cult movie. It is People a big love cult Gattaca. Movie. It's a little chilly. I, I think, uh, like you know, I don't know. I am curious. Brr. I can't. Can't figure out what you think of this. All but right. um, are you ready well, for your turn? I am. Eight ball? I am. All right. Well, how about three new films? All right. We'll start with one that is available on, now on Netflix. It's entitled Passione. It's an interesting little film from director John Turturro, the actor. This is a part documentary, part 
musical all about the city of Naples and its musical traditions, from ancient ballads to classical compositions to modern jazz, reggae, everything in between. Throughout, John Turturro is your host. He's your MC. He's occasionally a performer. I think he sings and dances at one point. Wow. Oh, yeah. It's a hoot. This movie is light. It's fun. Beautiful, uh, you know, visions of Naples, a place I've never been. But you really get a feel for the city and for its music. And it's it's fun. It's a really nice, you know, it'd be just a nice, light, you know, entertainment. Nothing too deep or serious. But you'll have a nice time watching it. That's Passione. It's available now on Netflix. Now available on Crackle is uh, is really one of the movies I'll be watching this week. I haven't seen this one, but this has long been on my list of like movies I kind of know I'm going to dislike, but I have to see at least once. It's called Neighbors. This is John Belushi's last film before he died. And it's the only thing he made where he was the, a star or a featured you know, performer that I haven't seen. I've never seen this one. It's not highly regarded, but I am really curious because I do love John Belushi, and I've seen everything else he did. It's directed by John Avelton, who directed Rocky. It's written by Larry Gelbard, who developed MASH for TV. So he has an amazing pedigree, and it's a John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd film. They sort of swapped types in this one. Belushi plays this straight-laced guy. Ackroyd plays the crazy one, and they are neighbors, and they don't get along. Again, not a highly regarded movie, but I'm, I'm, I'm. This is what I'm going to be watching this week when I get a chance. So I thought people might be interested. That's Neighbors, available on Crackle. And finally, another entry in the now inaccurately titled ESPN documentary series Thirty for Thirty. It's an installment about the great baseball and football player Bo Jackson. It's called You Don't Know Bo, which is a play off his his old ad campaign. Bo knows. Baseball, Bono's football, these uh, really popular series of Nike ads when he was uh, famous. And Bo Jackson, although he's probably faded a little bit into obscurity, he really was, as the movie argues, as close to a modern folk hero like a Paul Bunyan as our country has had in like the last 50 years. This guy who was both this incredible baseball player and an incredible football player. He didn't last very long in professional sports. Um, but as the movie suggests, we don't really know the real guy, and we get to know him a little bit in this excellent documentary, which is now streaming on Netflix. Okay, two expiring films. All right, let's start with a film that's expiring from Netflix on April 3rd. It is The Last Exorcism, the 2010 found footage horror film about a preacher from the South who's lost his faith and decides to participate in a documentary, a fake documentary from our perspective, since this is a fiction film after all, that will debunk the myth of exorcisms. He takes a camera crew with him on a random house call and shows us behind the scenes of how he performs a exorcism to cleanse someone with a lot of you know showmanship and sleight of hand of a quote-unquote demonic presence. Little realizing, in fact, that this latest client actually needs a legitimate exorcism. And the sequel, The Last Exorcism Part 2, which is really one of the worst titles in the history of (laughs) cinema, ditched the found footage uh, gimmick from the first movie. It ditched anything interesting about the material. But this first film, I think, is really one of the better recent horror movies, Allison. It's probably my favorite found footage horror movie after Blair Witch. And it is streaming on Netflix until April 3rd. And finally... The beauty, the pageantry, the image of Gene Kelly roller disco dancing. Yes, Xanadu, the infamous 1980 flop about a man who paints record store window advertising and is then visited by, who else, Allison? An ancient Greek muse played, an ancient Greek muse played by Olivia Newton-John who inspires him to create truly great art. And what is that truly great art, Allison? You guessed it! 
an Art Deco-themed roller skating rink. Yes, what is more creative and more beautiful and more Greek, really, than Art Deco-themed roller skating rinks? This film, of course, was a punchline almost immediately following its initial release, which was a flop. Uh, but the movie has become kind of a key text in the world of So Bad It's Good Movies. It even inspired a recent Broadway musical, which faithfully adapted the original story to the stage while simultaneously making fun of it. That is Xanadu and is expiring on Netflix on April 1st. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number 77. And this week, that is Law of Desire, the 1987 film from Pedro Almodovar. Rated NC-17, according to Netflix, so mm, must be scandalous. I'm sort of uh, Almodovar deficient. I've seen all his recent stuff, you know, since, uh, you know, in the last, like, ten years I've seen all those movies. But I still have not had a chance to go back and watch the early ones, which I bet I would actually enjoy more than the recent ones, frankly. But I just haven't had a chance, and I one, one night I looked up all the Almodovars that were on Netflix this one was. I put it on there, and, and that's why it's sitting here. Hopefully, I will get a chance at some point soon to watch it. Allison, now it's time to go through our listeners' choice options for our next episode. I think we've got some interesting ones mm-hmm. this week. Why don't you start with the first one? All right. First up is a TV series this time around. It is The Shield, which Crackle will be rolling out over the next few months. So we'll kind of we'll determine how much of The Shield we... Uh, we cover in this review as we see what they've done. It's starting on April 1st on Crackle. Uh, the Shield is, of course, the uh, FX drama starring Michael Chiklis, premiered in 2002, and really became, you know, one of those uh, series along with like The Sopranos and The Wire that led this recent, like the current quote unquote golden age of television and these like dark dramas and these complicated anti heroes that's really. Um, you know, made TV so interesting right now. So uh, that is streaming on Crackle as of April 1st. That's your first option. Your second option is uh, is a double feature, actually, of two films by the same director, which will both be available on Netflix starting on April 1st. And we thought they'd be fun to do together. They're 48 Hours and Streets of Fire, a double bill of Walter Hill films, one of uh, the great sort of action auteurs of the last 25 years. He made many great films, including 48 Hours, and he wrote Alien, the original Alien. I just saw one of his very first movies, Southern Comfort, which is fantastic. His latest movie was Bullet to the Head. It came out a few months ago. It's not terrible. It's all right, you know. But Walter Hill is, you know, is a great director. And Allison, you actually haven't seen either of these. I movies. have not seen either. Of these and movies. I've seen Forty Eight Hours a bunch of times. I love Forty Eight Hours, but I've actually never seen Streets of Fire, which he made right after Forty Eight Hours. This is from nineteen eighty two and nineteen eighty four. And so I've never actually seen Streets of Fire, which has a great reputation as well, and is considered one of his his classics by those who've seen it. You know, it's you know the the, the classic rock and roll fable. But I haven't, I haven't seen it. So uh, we would, we would enjoy doing that. I think I would enjoy the shield. I've seen some of the shield. We didn't say that. Have you seen the shield? I have not. So I really would be. Well, I'm deficient in the shield. As a TV critic, be, that's a, a blind problem. spot. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I've seen the like the first season of the shield, which I enjoyed. It's just you know I didn't see it at the time. I was watching it on DVD, and I just didn't have a chance to 
power through. Yeah, but it's the, just it's yeah. tough sometimes to make all that time, especially when you at this point I was renting the discs, so right. that can be a pain in the butt. But I really enjoyed what I saw, so I would love to do that. But I'd also I think a Walter Hill double feature would be pretty awesome too. That would be awesome. So that's option number two, Allison. What's option number three? Option number three is Hands on a Hard Body. Uh, this is the 1997 documentary directed by S. R. Bindler that is also a kind of cult favorite, um, particularly since it has not been available um, since, I think, like, you know, it's uh, been put up for digital download by the filmmakers at handsonahardbodythemovie.com. So please keep in mind, it's like a $10 digital download or $15 if you want it loaded with all the extras. And I think they have like an hour and a half of um, interviews. But, you know, this is a movie that's... uh, Considering it's like a small, I think like a first time film from uh, Bindler and a kind of small documentary, it's one that's really developed a, a kind of big following. Um, it has, uh, Altman was, you know, working on a feature version when he passed away. There's a Broadway musical that just opened that is based on it with music from uh, Fish's Trey Anastasio. Uh huh. And it's a documentary. Basically, it's uh, about a. That's a really good fish impression. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it's a documentary and uh, endurance competition for a truck that took place in uh, Longview, Texas, which the competitors put their ha- – you have to have at least one hand on the truck at all times, and then you – just whoever's, whoever's, whoever's last person left standing on there wins the yes, truck. and it takes days. So it was, and, a, it's, and it was a documentary. Documentary, yeah. And this is a, and now there's a musical, a Broadway musical. Broadway musical, is based it lavish. On this. Is it a lavish Broadway musical? I have not seen the Broadway okay. musical, but it just opened, and it got. You said it got a good. It review got a in good the review in the New York Times. Times. Yes, yes. And I, I have seen this film before. Okay, I've never I, seen the film. I like it a lot. You I really just, want? You want to revisit it? I do. Well, I think like you know, it's also. It, but there's a reason that like kind of weird like big attention is paid to this pretty small documentary mm-hmm. and I think that there's something really interesting about it and uh, and kind of a little dark underneath the uh, the whole pageantry of you know this goofy competition All right, well. so that is Hands on a Hard Body the third choice available at handsonahardbodythemovie.com alright well which movie or TV show should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit you can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, April 1st at noon, and I'm suddenly realizing with a deep pang of regret that we could have done three totally fake listeners. Yeah. April 1st, <laughs> we could have been like, we're going to watch Xanadu, or we're going to watch Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> <laughs> or we're going to watch Extreme Couponing. You pick, listeners. Which one is it going to be? But no, these are the real options. There's no April Fool's joke involved. Sadly, we missed our chance. After all of that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, at FilmSpottingSVU. And then you'll have a week to watch the film with us or the TV show with us. And join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be on Tuesday, April 9th. You can send your feedback to svu at filmspottingsvu.com, including any angry primer defenses, please. Yes. Uh, and filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive uh, and a list of direct links to all the movies that we have discussed in the episode. The Film Spotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of his work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the review that you pick. 
In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show on Twitter at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice, where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For FilmSpottingSVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>